Hey there, and welcome to Speak Easy with Kendra Fisher. Join me each week as my guests and I take a deep dive into all of the conversations we've been taught are better left unsaid. No more silence, no more hiding. This is a safe space where anything goes. This week on Speakeasy, I'm speaking with my dear friend, Brady Liebold. Once signed by the Tampa Bay Lightning, his journey took him from the NHL to homelessness and drug addiction. But most importantly is where I was blessed to meet Brady last year as a founder of Puck Support, a huge advocate for mental health and addictions. Brady, my friend, I am so grateful to have you in my life. How are you doing? Kendra Fisher, nice to see you. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm great now. I think it's going to be fantastic. We're just going to keep harassing each other like weekly so we can keep finding stuff to do together. Sound good? I'm listen, you already know that I'm, I'm all in for that. I tell you all the time. I just want to ride shotgun to you. I think you have so you bring so much value, Kendra. And, you know, you've been on my show before and we talked uh, a little bit on there and we've talked since then. But, you know, you've really been a leader in this space. And before we go any further, I just want to say thank you again, because as I mentioned to you before, and I think a lot of people know you've been doing this a lot longer than than most people, including myself. And so, you know, tough sledding uh, probably at the beginning. But thank you for all that you do um, and continue to do, Kendra. And thanks so much for having me here. Well, like now I'm going to have you on every week because you're just kind of like the greatest ego boost I could possibly have. And I, I, I'm also going to throw you under the bus for one second because you were all scattered there. Brady's, Brady's computer froze. We were doing like a little, a little tech juggle there. Um, and it was fantastic because everybody in my community is so used to me being the yard sale and me being the one who like doesn't have. So we were late because of Brady today, not me. Am I, I'm, I'm doing yes. it. I'm doing it. <laughs> yeah, no, hey, I'll take hey. You know what? I can take full responsibility for for my actions these days, and that that includes uh, being on time and being organized. And that's something uh, I think maybe people listening, some of your followers, can understand that when we're dealing with mental illness, uh, recovery from addiction, piecing our life back together can be difficult. And I'm sure as for you, a lot of people have probably looked to you over the last number of years to be this uh, pinnacle of strength and organization. And we're talking about these issues, but. You know, I, I just want to remind people, you know, I can just speak for myself that, you know, I struggle every single day and, um, you know, I still have a lot to learn. And so I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. It's a it's a much needed reminder for me and and something that I need to continue to work on to get better. It's fantastic, too. And I mean, it's, you know, that accountability piece. And and one of the things I mean, I, Brady and I only met recently. And, and at the same time, we've kind of been back and forth chatting now online for a while, trying to connect. And we're, we're finally getting ourselves together. And it's funny because in the beginning, um, I, I spent so much time doing this thing where I felt like in an effort to be that pinnacle, in an effort to be that image of recovered and great and i i felt almost like i was fearful of sharing those moments where i was still fighting it or i was fighting the the image of a bad day because i didn't want it to be uh lacking hope i didn't want people to look at that as like ah you know she's really not doing well and i've learned that that's exactly true really owning those pieces where you could just say Hey, you know what? I'm not at my best right now. And I'm, I am quite often scattered and I am quite often just kind of, I, I moved into my office today. I'm not in my bedroom today. Like I'm proud of myself, um, you know, and really admitting those moments and, and those achievements and accomplishments. It's huge and being honest about them. 
it's you know it's really interesting you you brought that up too because um a lot of people watching or some people watching may know a little bit about my story i don't know how much we want to dive into that but i just celebrated two years free from free from hard drugs and that life of addiction and you know my life is now manageable i mean to me as we just talked about a little scattered but i've been able to piece my life back together more than i've ever been able to in my life and i i feel um more confident in myself i can look myself in the mirror today uh on good days and on and the reason i bring that up is because this you know last summer um you know i had a really hard time through july right until the end of september i want to say where i was really white knuckling it and i was doing it on my own for just that reason right i was ashamed that okay well our automatically people thought if I'm having a bad day, they're going to think that I'm going to relapse and they're not going to do this. But I found that really it did it did more damage than good, not only to myself, but to other people too, because I think there's just so much value in sharing honesty. And if anybody can say that they have a good day every day or their m- mental health is 100% every day, you know, teach me please and, and show me this person because it just doesn't exist. And there's, that's where we, we see breakthroughs with people, I think is, is that vulnerability. And I just think it's really important for, for people to understand that, you know, we all have hard days, um, whether it's a doctor, a firefighter, a hockey player, a teacher, it doesn't matter. Right. And it's not so much about how, you know, that we're going through. It's like, how do we deal with that? And that was a big learning piece for me was being able to pick myself up and and let the people know, not just those closest to me, but I kind of had made a decision to be very public with my story. And all of a sudden now it's like, well, I wasn't even going through that hard of a time. Like for me it was, but on the outside, you know, I was fearful of judgment, but here I had put my story out prior to being homeless and incarcerated and all this stuff that on the outside may look worse. But as I built my life up and I was starting to feel good, and then all of a sudden you go through this period of feeling bad, I felt really alone. And it was a really, um, you know, big learning experience for me. And I made a very conscious decision that, hey, you know what, I'm not going to beat myself up for the way that I dealt with those three months. I'm going to learn from it. And I'm going to acknowledge, you know, the choices that I made and and the way that I treated myself through that time and treated others. And I'm going to learn from it and make sure that I can do whatever I have to do so that it doesn't have to happen again. And certainly not for that prolonged period of time. So um, I'm certainly glad you brought that up. And like I said, we can dive into whatever you want to. As you know, I'm a very open book. Yeah, which is what I love. I mean, we both uh, we both kind of accidentally fell into this role. This wasn't exactly the plan either of us had for our lives. And yet here we are. And it's probably, you know, the, the best possible outcome for our lives we could have had. So, uh, I mean, uh, as much as I miss playing the game, I certainly wouldn't trade it for, for where I am now. And, uh, you know, the other piece to that, too, is it, it's a privilege to be able to use this platform as a staple of accountability, uh, as that piece where, you know, whether you like it or not now, you've invited people in to be a support in your life. And whether it's a close personal connection or just people being aware of the fact that maybe you've been absent a few days or a couple of weeks, and all of a sudden you've invited people to keep you accountable. And without even realizing it, you build these communities of incredible people who just show up for each other day after day. And it's phenomenal. So it, it, really is yeah so i i do want to do the deep dive i do want to do the deep dive because because you know i don't i don't do easy talks i don't do easy conversations i think that the true value is allowing ourselves to be vulnerable and to share our life experiences and i i mean you're incredible your story is incredible and it would be an absolute uh 
loss if if those on my community who aren't familiar with your story didn't get to hear it. So I, I don't even I don't even want to lead you with my questions here. I want you to kind of give us the 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 Cole's note, but not the Cole's note. I want to I want you to yeah. share your story with uh, these people. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I've done, I've had the opportunity, like you say, it's been a privilege to be able to share my story in so many different spaces over the course of the last two years, from hockey teams, from podcasts, live speaking, all that stuff that you do, right? And it, it really is a privilege. And I, I look at my life as, you know, I didn't go to school. Uh, I didn't get a degree. I didn't do, but I have a, you know, I have a PhD in life experience in mental illness and addiction, what it's life, what it's like to live with it. Uh, I've seen the, the despair of what it does to other lives through being homeless, through being incarcerated, um, and, and a number of other areas. And so, you know, I'm originally from Port Coquitlam, British Columbia, hometown of the, the greatest Canadian of all time, Terry Fox. And, um, you know, nice little small town in the lower mainland of British Columbia. And, uh, you know, I fell in love with the game of hockey. I think the very first time I saw it, uh, my very first memory of watching hockey is, you know, watching Pavel Bure in the early 90s and just taking hockey to a whole new level. It was fast. It was exciting. And I needed to be part of it. And uh, right around that time, a couple of things, uh, probably the, I'm not even probably the two most traumatic things that, you know, in my childhood happened to me uh, pretty, pretty simultaneously. And so what happened was uh, just before my fifth birthday, my mom, uh, she left my dad uh, to be a single dad. And, you know, I don't want to sit here and out my mom. I still saw her. It's not like she just up and left. But I was with my dad, I would say like, 85, 90% of the time. He's uh, now retired fire captain and just did a tremendous job doing everything that he possibly could for myself and my sister. Um, it was really hard, right, for a young boy, I think right around that time, all of a sudden not having that that mom around uh, to get a hug or whatever. My dad is, you know, a man's man, you know, a lot of PTSD from firefighting, lost his dad at a young age, doesn't really wear his heart on his sleeve, wasn't a whole lot of, you know, I love you hugs or whatever, but a ton of support in, in other areas, right? Um, you fast forward three months after happened that what when that happened uh, i was on a family vacation with my mom's entire side of the family which we would go every year to this fishing lodge that our extended family owned and they would close it down at thanksgiving time and the entire family would be there family reunion type deal anywhere from 50 i would say to like 100 and 125 50 people i don't know friends relatives everybody you'd think like people that you can trust right and so yeah. You got a picture that there's there's multiple cabins along this lake and one main cabin, people in the trailers and the campground, just people everywhere. And we're all extended family, you know, kids. Oh, where's Brady and, and Jimmy? Oh, they're over in, you know, Paul's cabin or whoever. I'm just using names. I'm not outing anybody. But, you know, and it's not a big deal, because <laughs> you know, our trust, right? Family trust. And so what happened was is uh, an older guy took advantage of me and you know I was sexually abused for the first time and it happened a couple times during that trip and um, you know my memory is pretty sporadic but I believe it was the next year as well I always just say five and six but it's sort of spotty and I just know that definitely was when I was five and I'm pretty sure the next year too um, and so I was sexually abused and it did a couple of things right it obviously was scary and and I, I didn't understand how could you possibly understand what that is at five years old right I didn't um, but, it, you know, they, I was manipulated into thinking that it was my fault and to be scared and to not tell every, anybody. And um, so there's two massive traumas that happened and um, right in around that time. And so I took that and I threw myself into hockey. Hockey became my first drug, uh, you know, 
growing up in BC, we didn't have the outdoor rinks uh, or the ponds as where we met on Lake Muskoka for the pond hockey tournament last weekend. But you know, it was on my rollerblades or in my carport or watching TV, watching the Canucks game on TV, stick handling in between commercials. And you know, it was because when I was doing that, I didn't have to like think about all the other stuff. I didn't have to think about what had happened to me or where my mom was or or you know like to worry about people finding out about any of that stuff. And uh, so I threw myself into hockey and I really liked the way that it made me feel right. That escape. It didn't, you know, as I think a lot of people know, when you find something like hockey or another sport or a hobby that is you're passionate about, it just takes away everything and you just forget about it all. And so I developed fairly high skills at hockey, but my mind was so scattered all the time, you know, shortly after that, you know, a year, two years, whatever it is, you start to hear homophobic language on the playground, in the dressing rooms. Uh, you know, I saw multiple people get labeled uh, with different things that, you know, as a kid, you people probably didn't even know they're not stuff that it wasn't even true but i saw people getting picked on and bullied in school and labeled and i i watched this happen and i'm like wow like i can never ever tell anybody what's going on with me because my life will be ruined right and then you know as you start to play triple a hockey and you get older that culture inside the hockey dressing room at at least back then and i know it still has a long ways to go but they've made a significant improvements with inclusion and different things but i'll tell you back then it was uh it was like an old boys club in the language and, and it was like, yeah, I'm never telling anybody. And so, you know, hockey stopped working for me, right? That outlet work stopped working for me as, you know, the pressure, the, the dressing room dynamics started to change and, um, you know, just the pressures and all that was not just about an escape anymore. Now I was looking for something to escape hockey because now I have the pressures of, you know, uh, trying to maintain this level and keep up and take that next step to the Western Hockey League or whatever it was. And so at 14 years old, you know, I started to smoke weed and, and drink and, and, you know, really start to contemplate suicide, started to self-harm. Uh, that kind of stuff is when that started happening for me. I actually quit hockey numerous times over the years, but I think the first time at 14, I just didn't want to play anymore. I just didn't, you know, it wasn't like I loved hockey, but I, I more loved it because I liked the way that it made me feel. And it wasn't making me feel that way anymore, at least going to the team and the the practices and all that stuff it just it wasn't for me anymore but i didn't know what else to do right i didn't know what else to do yeah. so i stuck with it and ended up making my way into the western hockey league at 16 years old i mean it's the pinnacle for hockey at 16 you can play at a higher level in western canada or the ontario league it's the same right at 16 and i just remember being in swift current uh the swift current broncos at 16 just thinking like wow like i just want to get out of here like I want, I don't not want to be here. Like this is awful. On the outside, you see a 16 year old kid living out his dream, and yeah, behind closed doors, I'm thinking I want to kill myself. I want to go home. Like I don't want to feel this way anymore. So I did. I ended up, you know, pretty much leaving the team at 16 and went back at 17, um, thinking, you know, one year was going to make a difference. I did nothing to work on myself. Didn't address any of these issues. And I just highlight the fact that up until. I think I was 28, I'm now 34. So up until six years ago, absolutely nobody knew that I was sexually abused, absolutely nobody. I didn't tell a single person, um, period. So I was carrying all this with me and um, I think Swift Current too, uh, it was, I loved Swift Current, I loved the people, but it had this, this dark cloud because of Graham James and Sheldon Kennedy and Todd Holt and all the other players that were abused by Graham James when he was there. And I remember being in the office of Dean Chanel when I was 17. And I remember like looking on the wall, they had all the team pictures, right? And I'm like sitting there and I'm, I'm, there's a team picture where Graham James is sitting next to Sheldon Kennedy. And I'm like, I'm looking at this picture and I just, you know, and I just 
it just threw me into this, like, I don't know, this crash. And for the rest of the year, I was just like on edge, like, are people going to find out? Do I need to tell people like, do I even want to be here? Do I even want to be alive? I don't want to play hockey anymore. It was a mess. But on the outside, again, I kind of kept it together. Um, you know, I got rookie of the year that year. You know, I remember getting the award on the stage of getting rookie of the year. Here, right? Like I got this award and I was absolute 17 years old and I'm hammered drunk, right? On getting this award, thinking that that was okay because all the other players on the team were drinking. And I remember leaving that season and having a, a, a meeting with Dean Schnauz, who was the coach. I actually saw him for the first time in like 10 years the other night at the Leafs game. I went and banged on the glass and was like, hey, Dino, you know, and he turns around, didn't even recognize me, but we chatted for a couple minutes. It was kind of cool. But, you know, I, he, he sat me down. He's like, hey, you're going to have every opportunity next year. You know, first line, power play, you know, penalty kill. We're going to teach you everything. You're going to get drafted. You're like, this is your year. You're going to be wearing a letter. You know, if you can hold yourself together off the ice, we'll give you an A, like whatever. And again, like it was in one ear, out the other. I'm like, I just want to get the hell out of here. And I went home and, you know, continued drinking like every single day of the summer until I went to this country music festival. You can cut me off at any time because this is a long story, but I went to this country music festival and, and, you know, I'm 17. I just graduated. I was just about 18, but I was 17 years old and going there to party. Can't even tell you how many beer I had at the back of my truck. My girlfriend at the time with me, all the friends going up there, people that were older than me, hockey players that I looked up to that were now playing pro that had contracts. They were partying, drinking, doing drugs. Now, up until this time, I'd never taken a drug other than marijuana. Um, and it was something that I was just never, ever going to do. Like there was no question in my mind. I'm a hockey player. I'm an athlete plus drugs. They're just not for me. In fact, I had like cast people out of my life in, during my teenager years, not doing the right thing, not trying to support them or whatever, but I'm, you know, I didn't know how, right. And that's sort of what we can talk yeah. about later is what we're trying to change this, but I didn't know how I actually cast people out of my life and, and judge them quite, quite harshly for it. Right. Thinking that, you know, that'll never be me. I went to this country music festival and about four days into it, you know, everyone was doing ecstasy, MDMA, whatever you want to call it. And like, at first I was like turned off by it, but by the second day, I'm like, wow, these guys, these people look like they're having a good time. Like this, they're having fun. And then you see hockey players doing, I'm like, these guys were playing, you know, a couple games in the NHL last year and they're doing, I'm like, they can't be that bad. Like maybe it isn't that bad. Right. And on that fourth day, I made a decision to do it and um, it changed my life forever. And, you know, it wasn't that, that, that was my first it was the only drug that I did and I abused it for the every day for like the next two months until I went to Swift Current again. But what it did was it broke down a barrier, a barrier that I had set for myself that was like, I'm not going to do this. Like, this is not for me. Yeah. Right. And it went from that, you know, popping those pills to all of a sudden you're snorting it. And, you know, now I've got to go back to Swift Current after not training and binging on all this stuff. And my mental health was just a mess, like disaster. I ended up leaving the team seven games into the season. I packed my truck up and drove straight home barely even told my dad, my dad said, what the hell are you doing? Everyone's like, what the hell are you doing? I'm gone. Drove from Swift Current back to Port Coilum 14 hours straight or whatever. And, and signed with the tier two team there, the Burnaby Express. I got to play with Kyle Turris and like really good players. They paid me a ridiculous amount of money to come play for them. But that was, you know what I did with that money? I took it and, and did drugs. And by New Year's of that year, I did my first line of cocaine. And um, again, something that I never was going to do, but now all of a sudden I'm doing it. And, you know, in my mind at that time, that was the end, right? That was, okay, these are party drugs. It's, it's accepted. I'll never do anything else. But I kind of carried that into me. Whenever it was around, I was doing it. I was looking for it anywhere I was. If I knew it was available, I was looking to do it. And I, you know, obviously in the hockey community, everybody started to know that I was a drug addict, even in the Western Hockey League. It's a very tight knit community. 
people tried to intervene, intervene periodically, but again, I wasn't willing to be honest about anything. So I don't blame anybody. Um, you know, I, I think that maybe if, if things were set up differently and, and, you know, I felt a little more empowered and encouraged and there was actually some sort of support and someone to look to, to say, Hey, you know, I've been through this and, you know, don't worry, I got you type deal and bring it through, then maybe there, it would have been different. And that's again, what we're working towards, but you know, it was, um, it was really trying and, um, you know, I knew I made a mistake, but I, you know, I just couldn't stop. I couldn't stop doing the drugs. I got kicked out of my house shortly thereafter, left the express, kicked off the team because I wouldn't, couldn't get clean and kept failing drug tests and all this stuff. And my dad kicked me out of the house at 18 years old. I'm homeless now for the first time, but I went and stayed with my friend's house. That was not being homeless. I'll tell you about being homeless, but that was my first experience of, you know, not really having anywhere to go. And, Halfway through that summer, I called Dean Chanelth, God bless his heart, and said, hey, listen, I, I made a huge mistake, like huge mistake. I got to come back and play if I can. He's like, well, you're probably not going to make this team. You've already left this team numerous times and all this stuff. He's like, but we can probably find you somewhere to play. We'll trade you, whatever. I went back to training camp. Um, you know, I settled down for the last two, month and a half before going there and kind of got my head on straight because I knew what I had to do and went there and, and made the team and started fighting a lot. And, and, you know, again, on the outside, it looked good, but I was drinking like every day and missing a couple times. I missed practices and different things because I'm passed out on the floor somewhere. And like, this is in the Western hockey league, like in one of the best junior hockey leagues in the world. And right. And, and that was my experience of it. And and I'll fast forward through my junior career because there's just so much that goes into it. But I ended up getting traded to the Kelowna Rockets my last year and had a really good season. And, and I wasn't even, I didn't even want to play hockey. I just wanted to have one last year of fun. And it was so much fun playing with Jamie Benn and Myers and Chen and Tyson Berry and all these young superstars that were just unreal. And I was just enjoying it. I didn't really care about how much I contributed. I wasn't worried about if I was scoring or whatever. I just was having fun. And what do you think happened? All of a sudden I started scoring and, and getting all these points. Now all of a sudden NHL teams are calling about me. And after everything that I'd gone through, they're still calling about me. And I ended up signing with the Tampa Bay Lightning. And you would, again, you would think, here it is, you know, you're well on your way. And what that did when I got my bonus money for signing, I went and, you know, spent pretty much all of it on cocaine. I didn't train at all. I didn't do anything. And all of a sudden it's time to go to, to prospects camp. Steve Stamkos was just drafted first overall. And, you know, they put me on his line, the, the very first inner squad game with Mitch Fadden. Um, him and Mitch Fadden and I were actually up all night, you know, doing lines the night before. Mitch Fadden is no longer with us. He passed away of an overdose in 2017. Um, and, and that was, you know, my experience and I wasn't the only one, right? Like going to an NHL camp and I was so distraught that I was using drugs while at the NHL camp. And it, it just, you know, I think for people on the outside, it's like, how could you be so stupid? Like, that was the question I got all the time. Like, how could you throw your whole life away? Like, what the hell is wrong with you? That guy's an idiot. That guy's a loser. Right. But I was hurting so bad and I was hurting so bad. And unfortunately, that was just the beginning, Kendra, you know, like that was, um, you know, because I didn't train and I wasn't in good shape. And now all of a sudden I'm in the American Hockey League, which is a big step, a big step from junior. I had no idea how big of a step the American just to the American Hockey League was. I don't know why I was so naive, but I was. And these guys are men and they're big and they're strong. And I was using drugs and not training and. I blew my knee out like one of the very first games and uh, that's when I really got introduced to the painkiller Oxycontin and uh, I always tell people because I had no idea you know I kind of knew what they were I knew people that were addicted to them and that their, their lives were essentially ruined because of them but that was never going to be me you know that could never happen to me um, they're just a painkiller my knee hurts I need to take them 
What I didn't know, and I think a lot of people don't stop to realize, is that these painkillers are not just physical painkillers. They're emotional painkillers, too. So when I took these oxys, and you know, I started snorting them right away. I'm being very vivid. I'm sorry if this triggers people, but I'm just trying to put people, give people an idea of where I was at while I was trying to figure out my pro journey. It wasn't even like I just started eating them. I started snorting them right away. So there was no time release on them and everything else. My tolerance went through the roof. But I remember the very first time I took one, it was, I remember throwing up because if you take too much opiates or whatever, the first time you have no tolerance, your body can actually, you know, throw it up because it's a poison technically pretty much right and so i remember throwing up yeah. in the toilet and 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 just throwing my brains up but thinking to myself wow this is great like i love this i love the way this feels even though i'm throwing up nothing else in my mind everything else in my mind it just stopped and it didn't matter and i was just even focusing on the fact that i was throwing up nothing else i didn't, wasn't stressed about hockey or my trauma or any of that and i knew i was in big trouble I had no idea where it was going to take me. I had absolutely no idea the desperation of uh, what it's like to be addicted to opiates. Uh, it took my addiction from like literally, if you thought it was bad before, zero to 100 real quick. And, you know, I lost my hockey career shortly thereafter and, and lost everything. And, you know, I was a young dad at the time and lost my, my kids and, and everything. And, and, you know, there's a lot that goes into that. I'm writing a book. There's, there's so much, um, so many different storylines and things that have happened in ways that maybe I should have handled things that I just didn't do properly. Maybe I wasn't equipped to, maybe I was too mature, um, whatever you want to call it. But there's a lot that, that happened over the course of those years. And by the time, you know, 2013 rolls around when I'm 27 years old or whatever it was, I'd been removed from hockey for, you know, three years or whatever. And I was now homeless. You know, I found myself homeless on the streets of Vancouver, downtown east side, Hastings Street. I was down there for almost a year, like living in a tent, sometimes sleeping on cardboard boxes, most of the time not sleeping at all because I was so just on a drug-fueled rage of hatred and, and wanting to die and committing crimes and doing whatever I had to do to sustain my addiction. It didn't matter who or what got in my way. There was absolutely pretty much nothing that I wouldn't do um, to, to just keep going. And every time hoping that it was going to kill me, I spent a number of uh, months in the psych ward over the years uh, prior to being homeless as well. Uh, you know, one time in there for close to six months, another time for three months and, you know, really just wanting out and feeling hopeless. And uh, the drugs, the drugs were the answer. Eventually I just gave up. I tried, I went to rehab so many times and detoxes and counseling and, and tried everything till I felt like I exhausted every possible resource and I just couldn't do it anymore. And I couldn't, I couldn't do it. So I just gave up and I was like, whatever happens, happens. It's when fentanyl starts to get introduced around 2013 in Vancouver and people are unaware of it. I lost a lot of friends, almost lost my, my life on many occasions. Um, I don't know why or how I survived um, the amount of time that I overdosed and the stuff that I put me through, put myself through. Um, but after, you know, 11 months of running around and, uh, and I'm blatantly honest about this, stealing cars, breaking into houses, robbing liquor stores, uh, you name it. I did it. Selling drugs. I did it all. And all things that you would never, you know, I, I could never imagine doing now. But that is the power of addiction. And that's, you know, something that I never understood was just how bad that it can get and how bad it can get so quickly. And, you know, mm -hmm. I, again, go back 
judging people. I remember growing up in Vancouver, being down there and like, you know, driving by, locking the doors and like, look at those idiot losers, like junkies, like judging people. And there I was myself, you know, for almost a year. And there's a really powerful story that goes along with that. If we have a minute, Kendra, I'll share it with, and I share this with a lot of, when I do my um, talks with hockey teams, just because sometimes people think that, you know, my story is very far-fetched and you know, it can happen. And listen, I'm not the only hockey player that this has happened to. I'm just one of the very few that are still alive to tell the story, unfortunately, because the, a lot of hockey players, uh, a lot of people, but a lot of hockey players have lost their lives to overdose and more than people would ever believe, I guarantee it. So um, when I was 18, I remember I told you when I got kicked out of my house, I went and lived with my friend and I called Dean Chanelth and said, hey, I'm going to come back to the Swift Current Broncos. Well, in around that time, uh, me and my friend Anthony, we drove down from Port Coquitlam right downtown Vancouver to Canada Place. It was like, you know, 18 cruising, probably looking at girls or something stupid like that. And, you know, we went and on the way back, I got this brilliant idea. Let's go drive through Hastings Street. Like, let's go. Like, let's let's go check it out. I'll drive down the back alleys. We'll look at the prostitutes. We'll look at the drug addicts. Like, this was my mentality at 18. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I remember we went down I made that first turn into what is called Blood Alley, because I now know because I was down there and I know that area now. But this alley and instantaneously I got pulled over like sirens in the back of it, like pulled over. And I'm like, oh, shit, like kind of freaking out. Cop was like just getting dark. And the cop came to the window. He had a flashlight on. And he's like, what are you guys? Look, what are you guys doing down here looking for drugs or a date? And I'm like, neither, sir, like super cocky. I had my Broncos bag in the back of my truck thinking I'm untouchable because I'm a hockey player. Like, I cannot be honest about this. You know, I was cocky. I was, you know, whatever. We're just checking stuff out, you know, like, you know, I'm a hockey player. I got my bag in the back of the car playing the hockey player car, whatever. And like, I remember he took his flashlight and he looked in the back of my canopy. And sure enough, I had my bag and my sticks in the back because I always had all my stuff because pretty much I was homeless just bringing all my stuff everywhere. And he came back to the window. He was like pissed, Kendra. He was pissed. Like he put the light right in my face. And he's like, you think because you're an effing hockey player that you're above any of all this, above any of this stuff down here? He's like, we have a former pro hockey player that's down here right now that's missing an arm because of intravenous drug use. He's like, you stay away from, stay away from here. And if you don't think this can happen to you, you're wrong. And something along those lines, I just remember looking at him being like, that'll never be me. That'll never be me. And eight years later, nine years later, there I was, you know, intravenous drug user on the streets of Vancouver, using anything and everything, literally pulling water out of puddles, like didn't care. And, um, you know, almost lost my arm on numerous occasions from infection, had to get IV therapy more times than I can count and, and very lucky. And, you know, so just a very, a moment that I'll never forget. Right. And, and there it was almost like a warning sign all back, like back then, but I was too, too naive, um, you know, too full of myself, whatever you want to call call it, to even acknowledge that this this could in fact happen to me, right? And if it can happen to me, it can really happen to anybody. And I've seen and heard so many stories, walks of life from everywhere that have, you know, either ended up homeless or lost their lives, um, you know, ended up incarcerated. And I'll get into that if we have a second. I, I ended up getting 
um, arrested, you know, 11 months into being homeless on, on Hastings and slew of charges, like a slew of charges, like a hundred over like a hundred charges. They finally got me and they bring in, it was like every day when I was in jail for the first two weeks, they were just bringing more charges because they're building cases and finding out, Oh, you did this, you did that. And it was just like so overwhelming. But I just remember like being in jail, like thinking like, how, like, how could I, how did I end up here? Right? Like it, it, but it saved my life because it's like a week after I got arrested, there was this stuff that, that ran through the streets in Hastings that killed over 400 people that I knew and was hanging out with all within like two weeks, that W18 stuff. People that, you know, I had met over the last 11 months, some of them that I knew from childhood that were down there um, that we lost. And so I really look at it as, you know, another, you call it a God shot or whatever. It just happened at the right time. And uh, I ended up spending two years behind bars my very first time I was in there. Like, that's a long time. Like, that's a long time to be stuck in there and, and to reflect. And and uh, I did what I could while I was in there. But the, the jail system and the mental health system, the addiction system, all of it is so, so backwards. And so it sets people up to fail. And I'm so, you know, I wish I could tell people that, yeah, I went to jail for two years. I came out and I got my life back together and everything's good. That's not how it happened. I got out of jail and I, I, I actually overdosed like 24 hours later on my mom's front lawn. And, and that was like really close. That was like the closest I think I ever came to actually losing my life. And the only reason that I was still here because of that one is because my mom's landlord actually left for work early that morning and uh the the police officer down the road was doing her final paperwork for the morning end shift and she was parked like on the street down the road so when they called 911 she was there and she hit me with narcan right away like and and i don't you know it just so happened and and from there my family kind of freaked out they put me on a plane to ontario and that's where i am now i'm in muskoka but i originally moved to Orillia, and i'll tell you my life got even worse while i was there you know, I took what I learned from jail and homelessness and everything else and brought it to this small town of Aurelia, which, you know, was quite a bit different than being in Hastings and, and different things. So now, you know, I was rent, running amok on that town and, and was, you know, became one of the most wanted people in Aurelia and doing like I was just so lost. Right. I didn't know who I was and I just didn't feel like I could ever get better. Um, and I ended up in jail again this time for a year. And um, while I was in there, I. I started to write and, and to do some things and um, kind of turn my life, just kind of turn my life over to a higher power, if you want to call it, just to say, listen, like my life is 100% unmanageable. Like I cannot do this yeah. anymore. I've done, I've done it before, yeah. Kendra, where, you know, I've done the different programs and been like, yes, I have a problem. Yes, I'm an addict. Like, trust me, I've been to rehab like seven, eight times. Like I've did it all, but it was different this time. It wasn't forced. It was me alone in a jail cell going, okay, like something's got to give here. Like, I don't know what it is, but whatever I got to do, whatever I can do, I just want to serve. I want to make a difference. I want to make an impact, a positive impact in this world. I just need one more chance. And that was the conversation I had like every single night, you know, praying in jail and, and other things too. And and I got out of jail and I fell back into my addiction, but this time only for a very short period of time, you know, like a yeah. month and a month, I just had had enough. I was like, this isn't for me. Yeah. Swift, Swift current Bronco sent me a pair of skates and was like, Hey, you know, forget about your old life, get back in these skates. And I put my skates on for the first time. I cry <laughs> for like nine years. And, um, it was extremely difficult. It was extremely difficult to, uh, to start skating, um, especially once I got a stick in my hand just to, to, to understand 
that I'd gotten older, that my abilities had diminished, all of that stuff. It was frustrating. But I'll tell you, through all of that, you know, I didn't really think about that. Like, yeah, I was frustrated, whatever. But in my core, like in my core, I knew that I was home. Like I knew that I was home. Yeah. I didn't know what it was going to, I didn't know what it was going to look like. I didn't have any idea. I knew that I needed to be involved with hockey in some way to the point where I even at, at the very beginning, I emailed the junior C team up here in Huntsville, Ontario and said, I just want to be involved. I will come in the stands. Nobody knows that I need to be there. I will take stats for you. I will do whatever. Nobody has to know that I'm there. I won't tell anybody. Just let me help your team in whatever way that I can. And you know, that guy actually emailed me back right away. And he was the first one that I found out he was actually, he's actually a police officer too later on, months later after we connected. But you know, he really was willing to give me a chance. I never did take him up on it, but all it was was one person believing that maybe I can come back and make a difference. And you know, shortly thereafter I started my podcast, which was originally called Hockey to Heroin, the Road to Recovery. Pretty bold. Um, we've now changed the name to Hockey <laughs> to Hell and Back. I think it I think it resonates a lot more with people. Um, but out the gate, I mean, you know, I was very, very honest about what had happened and you know just trying to make a difference and, and share my story. And through that, Kendra, I started to, as you know, uncover stories of other hockey players who have taken their own life um, or overdosed. And some of them, my friends, a former coach, um, some of my people I looked up to, many of the stories, uh, people that I've never heard of and probably would never have heard of if I didn't actually do the research because we just don't hear about this stuff. And what I started to find was just, to me, unacceptable. Um, I don't think, I don't blame hockey for, for, um, these players uh, committing suicide or, or overdosing. I, I certainly think that maybe some things happened during their careers, injuries or whatever that maybe um, pushed them on that, that path. But I don't blame hockey as a whole for these issues. What I look to hockey as is to try to be the vehicle to try to save some of these lives because the community, as we talked about earlier, of hockey is so special. It's like no other sport, in my opinion, and maybe we're biased, but I've been around other sports. I've been around other athletes, and there's just something special about the hockey community that goes right from the fans, the parents, the coaches. Yes, we get bad apples, but they're everywhere. But generally speaking, the hockey community is a very, very, very special place. And, um, you know, I started to share my story and these amazing people um, rallied around me like from day one I just put it all out there you know not really caring what people thought because there was already newspaper articles about me going to jail and robbing taxi taxis at knife point and everything like how much worse could it get at least you can hear it from my mouth <laughs> like at least you can hear it yeah from my mouth right and, and try to understand like how does somebody go from from this to to that like real quick right and and I'm not a unique or special person this happens every single day maybe not in hockey but there's good people out there right now who are homeless or incarcerated or addicted or, you know, in the psych ward or, or in this moment contemplating taking their own life. And these are, these are amazing people that just need to be lifted up, sometimes need a chance or a second or third chance. They need to be loved, not judged. They need to be understood, not, you know, kicked when they're already down. And that was a big thing for me. And so, after hearing a couple stories of overdose, like the very first two ones, Matthew Lazinski and my former linemate, Mitch Fadden, who I alluded to earlier, 
I decided that something needed to be done. Um, There's a couple of us that were like, hey, let's do this. And it's been a two-year process of trying and failing and trying and failing to try to develop this charity for the hockey community. That's parents, coaches, and players to support them with and educate them on, on topics related to mental illness, addiction, uh, even things like equality, like all of it. And and so that's kind of where we're focused at now. And I can't wait to for you to be a part of that, Kendra. And, you know, and I just, as we're talking about, it, I want to just remind everybody in case you you don't know anything about what we're doing when it comes to anything that i'm doing or puck support or anything it's not about one person or one organization it's about aligning forces with with the with the like-minded people and like-minded organizations it's not about anyone for me at least getting credit or acknowledgement or spotlight or or whatever for me it's about helping people because as you know i'm sure you get a lot of people reaching out to you who are who are struggling and you help them through that and you know we're, we don't have huge social media followings by any means but i'll tell you what um i guarantee there's more action between our two social media following pages just with our small following than somebody would say like you know five hundred thousand followers that only and i'm not dissing anybody for doing this but it's a little different when somebody is doing it for their own self-interest and self-gain and self-promotion um, and they're not really engaging there's nothing really to engage it's more people looking and, and you're trying to make them envious of who you are and and that's really what social media is but you look at it with someone like yourself um, and several others and i would put myself in that category too it's like legitimately legitimately we're putting this stuff out there in hopes of helping people and then you know i actually try to make the time for these people when i can and sometimes it gets to be too much but at the end of the day this is what needs to happen people need to have real human connection with people with life real life experience that's been a huge lifesaver for me so anyways if there's anything i didn't cover please I need to take a drink of water. I'm losing my voice as, as per usual. <laughs> I'm just uh, I'm just following along too on some of the comments we're getting here. Uh, junior sea hockey volunteer saying when the game no longer a game, you become a commodity and no longer seen as people. And that's so true of, of so many different avenues in life where um, somebody is seen as as uh a, an asset really you know when it's sports or when it's entertainment and and where you get that financial uh drive involved a lot of M- olympic athletes and and amateur athletes experience that as well um and and it's heartbreaking brody kirbyson saying you know no matter how many times he hears you talk he's got chills um feel like maybe you know him there shout outs and uh debbie is yeah well. he was actually on he was he was at the he was on the puck support team that weekend. So he, I think he, he would have got to see him playing the U in jersey. Yeah, I do think. And and for those of you who remember a few days ago that I had shared that story, uh, it was Brady I was going to meet and his puck support team, uh, skating for angels. And I just I I can't focus on it too much. Or Brady and I are going to be sitting here in big puddles of tears, and we're not going to get anything else done. But uh, walking up behind that team and seeing the name bars on the back of those jerseys and and uh, knowing what it represented and knowing how many we've lost um it's never going to be okay there's never going to be a day that it's uh it sits with me in a way that i can just take it in stride it's uh it's tragic and you know one of the things you've said a couple of times now that i want to get back to and it's uh I'm going to get back to it with honesty um, as a first responder, you know, and, and something you alluded to about 
really needing to support those individuals who are going through addictions and going through these issues and trying to uh, refrain from judgment and refrain from just kind of that negativity of looking down on people. And it's always, I think, such a great personal challenge for me when I'm faced with somebody who challenges that for me. And I'm somebody who wholeheartedly understands uh, the concurrent disorders between mental illness and addictions. You, you don't have one without the other. Nobody has an addiction that doesn't have um, some level of, of negative mental health, if not a diagnosed mental illness. I, I don't think you can separate them. But I will say becoming a first responder and responding to the number of overdose calls that we do on a regular basis, it's difficult. It's difficult for that empathy not to wane. It's difficult for that empathy to not become exhausted because when you're faced with the same individuals over and over again, no matter how much your rational mind can can understand that it's not a, a conscious choice, that it's a disease, that it's an illness, it doesn't it doesn't stop weighing on those trying to provide support. And I think that it's something that is challenging for me personally. And, and I think for first responders, for family members, for friends, it's when you see those people um, supposedly choosing this and, yes. and there's the failure. And that's the failure that I do understand so that I, I'm not lost on that disconnect. But how do we encourage people to continue to step up and to repeatedly show empathy and support and try to, to respond with that? And, and another part to that would then be for those personal connections, where do we draw that healthy limit? Where do we draw that healthy line between being a support and losing ourselves to somebody else's battle? That's a that's a great question, and uh, you know, you're um, as I'm sure you've had that conversation with many of coworkers uh, in the fire halls. Um, this is something I've talked to my dad about. He actually retired early from the fire department based on too many overdose calls because I was still in active addiction, and he was actually worried that he was going to be finding me on on this on the street, right? And um, Stuart, as I said, you met. You know, we've talked about this too, and yeah, you know, it's. It's tough, right? And, you know, I think when I look at this, our society, let's just say here in Canada, for example, mm -hmm. when we look at uh, mental health or overdose calls, um, you know, and I've been involved in some of them myself, being the patient, being um, someone who's called 911 and have paramedics come in, you know, after I've administered Narcan, I can't tell you how many times I've administered Narcan in my life. Like, it's just, it would, yeah. it became like where I didn't even, if I saw someone overdose, Kendra, I didn't even, it, it didn't even phase me. I just was super calm, knew what I had to do and, and whatever. And like, that's not, it wasn't always that way, but that was where I, you know, and so I can even understand, like, I would see the same people overdose numerous times and it would be like man like or whatever like and that was even me and you know but you just you, you can't even stop to understand that that when it's calling right when it's calling 
um, it's almost impossible to say no, especially with the opiates, because you're physically addicted to it. And if you don't have it, your body's in survival mode, like legitimately it hurt. Like you feel like you need to do whatever you have to do to get it in your body. So you don't feel that way. And it's just, it's an unexplainable feeling. It's like, it's like the flu times 10 million. And all, you know, that all you have to do is just do a little bit more and you feel better. Now, the problem that I think a lot of people don't understand with today, and I'll get to the, your answer, your question here with an actual answer, but mm -hmm. with fentanyl, right, we see the overdose crisis, crisis with fentanyl gone through the roof in the last eight years, let's say, and five really out here in Ontario, six. But what people don't understand is that fentanyl right now is not even the main problem um, in, in a lot of these areas from people that I'm talking to and, and it, from all walks of life. It's it's actually the benzodiazepines that they're they're cutting this stuff with so now a lot of people are seeing where narcan isn't even working because ben, these high-grade benzodiazepines have the same effect kind of as fentanyl and fentanyl is is there's a very fine line between you're either drooling because you're so out of it like this or you're unconscious you're dead like that that's the that's the line and and so I, I think it makes it really difficult for people to understand that. And I do talk to a lot of family members um, who, like my dad, enable, right? Enable, um, want to believe everything that their loved one is saying. They want to support yeah. them. And, I, and it's a very, very good question, Kendra. Like, what is that line? And I can only speak on my personal experience um, because my dad was a, a chronic enabler. I would manipulate him, lie to him, scare him with stories. Oh, I'm being kidnapped. I mean, it did happen a couple times where dad actually happened. But after you see that work, it was like, oh, it's going to happen again. And he freaks out and, and gives me money or whatever. Like that's the, that's the life of an addict. And so I think there's a, there's a fine line between enabling and supporting. And the hardest thing... I know it was for my dad and, and numerous family members of, that I talked to who have lost a loved one or dealing with someone in addiction is we want to be the ones to be able to save them, to be able to help them, right? Like we're, we're their mom, we're their dad, we're their brother, we're their best friend. Like we should be able to be there and support them through it. But at the end of the day, you know, at least my experience is that nobody, absolutely nobody could do it for me. There just, there just yeah. wasn't. And my dad did more damage through enabling me um, and, and doing things like that than he ever did. Not meaning to, not meaning to at all. Yeah. So this yeah. is where, this is a big, big, big piece of the puzzle is when we're talking addicts, when we're talking, if you have a loved one who's going into recovery or going into rehab or needs help, if you think by sending that person to rehab and that's the only thing that needs to get dealt with, you're absolutely naive because this is a family disease. The people who have been enabling or supporting the best that they can, and I mean that with no disrespect because people just don't know how. We need to educate and get ourselves educated on what are the signs of, of you know, addiction. Like because we, we expect that at least... 
I know my family did, and I even did, going to rehab, that that was going to be the end-all, be-all answers. But in, in reality, yeah, sure, I was there working on myself. But did my dad work on any of the things? Did he educate himself on on the signs of enabling and, and different signs of, so that he could actually be in a position to support me? No, he didn't. Mm-hmm. I'm not blaming dad. I love you. I'm not blaming you. But that was never something that was really thought of. And I think a lot of people don't think of. So if, when I get asked that question, it's like, put yourself in a position to best support that individual. Don't, you know, don't believe everything that they're going to tell you just because they're yeah. clean or because they're going to go get recovery. Do your due diligence and put yourself, get educated, align yourself with people who have gone through similar things with, with a loved one in addiction or whatever. I think by having these conversations, not being embarrassed by it and allowing other people to come in and support you, that's going to give you the best chance for success. Like, but there, there is no easy answer. Um, but Kendra, I, I, I think too, right? Like it is, it's gotta be exhausting, uh, for first responders to have to continually go to these calls. I would really like to see, especially in certain areas. I know it's far fetched because there's so many little communities here in Canada to get to all of them. But I think what, you know, we see in Vancouver on Hastings street, they have a a 24 hour mobile unit that's just dealing with overdoses. So the fire department isn't having to go to these calls, mental health calls, right? Like I've been, I've been in a, a scenario where I've been manic and, and high on drugs and, and kill, wanting to kill myself, right? Where the cops are being called. You know, I've been cut down from a noose and now I'm freaking out because I'm back out, like yelling, screaming. And the cops come in, guns a blazing, right? Guns yeah. out, drawn, get yeah. on the ground, whatever. Sure, yeah. sure maybe. Yeah. Sure, maybe. But what would that look like if we have people who were actually trained to come in and deal with that? And on top of that, instead of taking me to jail for the night, why not have somebody yeah. for me to go see in a program to go into? Yeah. Like it's to me, yeah. there's just a, some, we need to rethink the way that we're doing all of this. And, and it starts, yes, I used to be like, hey, government, it's your fault. But it starts within our communities first, people, how we treat each yeah. other, um, you know, how we educate ourselves and, and what are we willing to do for, for others, right? And that, that's what it comes down to. So I hope that that's a long answer to your question, Kendra. It's all you get well, from me. Hey, I love on, I love long answers. Don't worry, Stuart warned me. Um, Actually, no. You actually you warned me because you told me Stuart was surprised you 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 let me talk so long when I was on your podcast. So it's all good. It's That's all fair. good. Um, one of the things I like that you said there that I just want to kind of draw back to for a second, other than the fact that you just brought up five other podcast topics for us. So clearly, we're going to have to do this again because we're going to have to hit up the, you know the the reassigning and and learning what uh, response should look like and how to to manage those limits but one of the things that i really like that you said there with regards to supports and with regards to those who are trying to be supports or responding to people who are in crisis whether it be addictions whether it be mental illness really for anything in life is put yourself in a position to be a support. And that means actually focusing on what you need to be supported in order to support somebody else, what you require to stay healthy to support somebody else. And I think that that's so huge because so often we run in desperation, we run in fear, we run to crisis thinking we can be the answer. And at the end of the day, somebody else's decisions are out of your control. And you can put yourself in a position where you can be an asset to that person's support team, or you really become part of the problem. 
And one other thing I want to hit there before we run out of time here is uh, with regards to your sobriety. So, I mean, there's, there's all these discussions around sobriety, around recovery. What does that look like? Um, we're going to have to do a part two because there's still so much to uncover. But, you know, looking at all of the work you would have had to have put in in order to stay here in this place and stay in a place of recovery and stay in a place where acknowledging bad days as bad days instead of an instant decline again. Um, you know, what does that look like for you? Is there any room for, because there's a lot of discussion, including even this morning on my page, um, and my take is abstinence. For me, my sobriety is abstinence. I don't drink. I, I don't... I don't leave opportunity for something to remove my rational thought and my conscious thought to put myself in a situation where I could then step backwards. So what has enabled you to kind of stay in this position? What are those hard lines for you? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. And that's a, a topic. It's a it's a really uh, touchy subject for a lot of people, certainly in recovery, I think. And again, because in yeah. my opinion, it's because there's been one narrative for so long and, and people want to believe that there's one way. Um, and trust me, you know, I tried that one way for many, many years, right? And it would work for a while and wouldn't. And, and you know, there's other things that I wasn't doing too. So I'm not blaming any one program. The onus lies on me. Um, but I tried and I tried multiple times, meetings, programs, all that stuff, abstinence, and, uh, you know, I'd fall flat on my face. Now, when I decided to do what I'm doing today, back in February of 2020, um, I, I didn't have a plan, right? I wasn't really trying to um, be the pinnacle for sobriety or anything like that. I just wanted to rebuild my life and what did that mm -hmm. look like? People have to understand that I was an IV drug user and I was a severe IV drug user. Um, up to 30 to 50 times a day i was i was you know putting a needle in my arm to say it candidly like no joke my my arms tell the story they're scarred up like crazy i still have those yeah. harsh reminders but it was really hard because for like a decade that was my life right and so what i did i actually used cannabis to transition out of out of that that life for me and that you know and on top of that starting to share openly and honestly and build this support network but that for the first i would say eight months you know, that's just what I did. And I wasn't happy about it. It was never that I wanted it to be that way. But I was able to stop the hard drugs and just focus on, okay, what's the next step? Instead of having to throw everything out of my life at once, um, I'm now to the point where, you know, I use it periodically at night, you know, as my, I don't take medications. Um, I've tried every, um, you know, antidepressant and different drugs and I and for me they just didn't work I know a lot of people that they do work and I think that's great and if they work stay with it and and that's amazing they just didn't work for me and um, they would make me feel like a zombie or trigger me to go use a certain type of drug because it would bring me up and then I'd want to come down like the like I just such it's so entrenched in the life a big game changer for me was somebody by the name of Riley Cote NHL vet um, big space their big presence in the plant um, medicine space was microdosing psilocybin. Now, this was something that I think, you know, again, there's no, when I take it, I don't have any um, mind altering effects where my impair, I'm impaired or my judgment's impaired. It's so minute. It's almost like a natural antidepressant where you just don't really notice. So I always have to speak openly. When I say I'm two years clean, 
Yes, I've used cannabis in the last two years. I've used psilocybin mushrooms in microdosing in the last two years. That's it. That's the line. I do not drink. I do not um, do anything else. Now, having said that before I run out of time, I am continually working on myself to hopefully get to the place where I can be abstinent and I do have, and I'm getting very, very, very close to that. It's been a process. It's been a two year process. And I used to put so much stress and pressure on myself. What do other people think of me? Are they judging me because I'm doing this? At the end of the day, I'm not proud. I, I wish my recovery was a little bit stronger and I didn't lean on these things. But at the end of the day, I'm not putting a needle in my arm anymore. I'm not committing crimes and I've built a life better than I've ever imagined for myself. But there's always room for improvement. So there's your answer. But I agree with yeah, you. Recovery well, and, for me, goal is abstinence, 100% always. I like leading questions because leading questions usually lead me to where I'm headed next. And so that worked out perfectly for me. I had a conversation uh, in an interview a couple of days ago with a recovery coach, uh, Jennifer Daly. It's on my page there. And one of the things that we were discussing was that whole notion of uh, recovery looking different for everybody. And what works for you working for you and and it's uh it's always intriguing to me what it is we are critical about in our own recovery the thing that we still see as something we need to do better or that we feel guilty about uh whether Mm -hmm. it's microdosing whether it's uh, marijuana whether it's medication for anxiety depression it seems we all still have this thing that we let creep in that makes us feel like we need to do more and we need to not uh, have these crutches. And I think that, um, you know, I'm going to give you my two cents worth. For me, I, I have been successful at getting to a place of abstinence, so I'm terrified of going back. And it's mm-hmm. funny because every once in a while, you know, I have that moment of, I wonder if I could have a drink, you know, I wonder if I could have a glass of wine with dinner. And I'll spend a few days, a few months thinking about it, just curious, you know, how strong am I in my recovery? How strong am I in my conviction? And then somehow I always come back to, I know I have an addictive behavior. I I know that that's always going to be a part of my personality. And why bother? Why bother taking that chance? Um, I did get to a place where I was asked if I would uh, try or see if CBD had any any benefits for me. Um, so I've noticed that I have tried CBD and uh, I've noticed that there are some nights that if I'm feeling really chaotic that if I use some CBD, that it it does make a difference. And I find that the effect of the CBD is less than the effect of taking it out of him. Um, mm. uh, I find that it doesn't have the same level of effect on me. So I think that it, it's important to start opening the door for honesty and conversation. I like what you're saying about feeling personally, like you want to get to a place that you know, you have that goal in your mind, but I also don't think that there's any judgment to be passed. I mean, from where you were to where you are today, um, we all have this bag of tools and this bag of coping strategies that we have to pull from. And I think that that looks different for everybody, but I think ultimately 
if the coping strategies aren't hurting you and aren't hurting anybody else and aren't leading to behaviors that are negative for yourself or anybody else, what's the argument against it? I mean, it, it's, is, and I've had to evolve in this because I used to be somebody who was very, not a chance. Like I'm not, I'm not trying it. And I was somebody too, that when I tried marijuana, when I was younger, I hated it. Like I hated it. I did not like the feeling of not being in control. I didn't like, just wasn't for me. So before you're too harsh on yourself and before you're sitting there thinking that you have this grand mission to make because you, you feel like you have to make some excuse. I don't, I don't think you're making excuses, but I don't know what word to use. You have nothing to make excuses for. I don't think those yeah, are negative. Yeah. yeah. I just, I honestly, I just, I tell it like it is right. And it's again, yeah. there's been times when it, I'll be honest, Kendra, it's been hard for me to, to even talk about this because based on who I'm talking to or who's watching, I, I want to be very cautious all the time about how I'm speaking about what has worked for me because I never want to lead somebody down the road at exactly Certainly. what I've done. I don't know how or why Certainly. that it worked for me, but all I know is that I kept trying pretty much the same thing over yeah. and over and over again, right? The definition of insanity, trying the same thing over yeah. again, over and over again, expecting different results, right? And it would yeah. be the end until I just got exhausted. And then I just gave up, right? And so now I sit here having this conversation with you and I haven't you know, done any hard drugs or anything, drank whatever for like two years. And I never, th I couldn't even go two minutes. Like couldn't even go two minutes, right? And um, yeah. again, like if, if I'm sitting here telling you that there aren't areas in my life that I want to improve on, whether it be my recovery or whatever relationships, yeah. anything, I mean, that's not a very good way to live. In my opinion, like if we're not always trying to learn and improve, like what, what's the point of living? Like the whole process of life is to just like evolve as, as a person and, and community and all this stuff and learn and take it all in and, and try to be better. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been tough because there are certain people and certain uh, even hockey players, let's say that, you know, have been in a program for a number of years, let's say 25 years clean and sober and NAAA or whatever that may look down on me. In fact, I know there's a couple of people mm -hmm. that look down on me, but at the end of the day, that that's on them. Like if people want to uh, worry about how I'm maintaining what I'm doing, that's that's really none of my business because I'm the one that has to look in the mirror every single day. I, I'd like to say I look in the mirror every single day. I'm not sure I do, but you know, you look in the mirror <laughs> and be okay with that person standing standing back in front of me, right? And I wasn't able to do that for for pretty much my entire life. Like from from the time I can remember, I remember like there's times over the course of my life, even as a kid, and certainly when I was in addiction, where I'd yell at myself in front of the mirror, like, "Who are you?" Like, why are you yeah. like, screaming at myself? Like, I don't do that anymore, right? And so I think it's really important for people to understand that there is no one way to do anything, no way to treat mental illness, no one way to treat addiction, no one way to, to do anything. Um, that's going to work for absolutely everybody. And if we want people yeah. to succeed in the space of mental illness and addiction, I really believe that we need to be open to other options. You know, are, are we still driving around, you know, 1910 model T Ford cars that are, we got to wind up to start or are we driving Tesla's some people, not me, but that can drive themselves, <laughs> right? Like 
it's it's maybe uh, one day, but I could care less. I'm good with like a little give me a little Corolla and I'll bomb around and I could care less. I'm so non-materialistic these days. But it just goes to show like we need to if everything else is evolving, why can't the recovery world of mental illness and addiction evolve as well? Like it just we we have so much more information, so much more research. Um and and I just believe that people need to keep trying whatever they need to try until they get to the point where they're okay and hopefully they can continue to just get better. And that's what I'm doing. And that's why I just you know, I don't apologize for for the things that I've done in my recovery, um, because at the end of the day, I'm I'm super proud of where I'm at today and, and somewhere where I've never thought that I could ever be. And it took me like a year, almost two years to be able to say I was actually proud of myself and believe it. So this is new. This is new. But when I mm -hmm. reflect back, mm -hmm. sure, it hasn't been perfect, Kendra. I've made a lot of mistakes in these last two years and and and, you know, maybe you know, not been organized and misconnections and, and hurt people not even meaning to because there's just so much going on. And, and like, those are the things that, you know, but I'm not sticking a needle in my arm anymore. I'm not worried about the cops knocking on my door looking for me. So if yeah. anybody has a problem with it, would you rather me be out, you know, committing crimes, yeah. breaking into your house, stealing your car? Yeah. Like, come on, like, yeah. that's where we're at with it. So it's, um, yeah, my yeah. life is better today than it's ever been, but it has a long ways to go. Yeah, well, and like you said, I think that it's absolutely imperative that we respect and understand the fact that it's always going to be a work in progress. I mean, I can't even fathom getting to a point in my life where, I sit there and think to myself, wow, I've got everything figured out and I'm good to go. Like, I just, this is where I'm going to sit for the rest of my life because I can't even imagine a more boring spot to be. But more importantly, I, I am far too uh, interested in being the, you know, I, I always want to be in a room where somebody's smarter than me. I always want to be in yes. a room where somebody is saying something that is genuinely interesting to me because to me that's where you find growth and you know the number of times people have told me i should try microdosing um i'm scared i'm scared to i'm terrified to because i you know i have this image of what mushrooms are and i'm just sitting there thinking not a chance in hell that that's my journey who knows it's, you know who am i to say that so not, so not well, like that is, though that's huge misconception but rightfully so, and, right? Like rightfully so. Yeah, yeah. And at the same time, I mean, I think, you, you know, you absolutely hit it bang on to it in another point, which is it's difficult, right? Because people take our conversation into these pieces of context and all of a sudden the headline is Brady Liebold said that you should be doing shrooms and smoking weed to get over drug addiction. And there it is. Exactly. There's, there's the next meme and there's the next statement of profound healing. Um, and it sucks. It sucks to feel like you have to put that disclaimer in every time you say something, but it's true because the careless thing for us to do would be to say, here we are and here's how we got here. And if you don't follow exactly the same steps, you'll never be okay. At the end of the day, my suggestion, and I'll do, I'll do the diplomacy for you here. You know what, if you're going to look into CBD, if you're going to look into microdosing, if you're going to look into these, find somebody who has the education find somebody who has the knowledge and allow them to guide you in a supported and intelligent way and find the things that work for you. At, at the end of the day, I mean, I, I'm, I'm so grateful because I can't, I can't honestly sit here and say that there wouldn't have been time that I would have driven past you on the side of the road and, you know, thought to myself, I'm not looking forward to coming back to this call later. You know, it's, it, it's, it's, 
human nature. Human nature is to be terrified of what we don't understand. Human yes. nature is to is to self-preserve. And part of self-preservation is avoiding situations that are difficult to face. And, you know, as somebody who has to respond to the addictions crisis in this country, there are days that it feels too much to respond to. It feels too much to face again. It feels too much to see the same face again and not be exhausted by the fact that that's what you're facing again. But I'm so grateful to have people like you who are stepping up and saying, look, you know what, I was one of those people. Here I am and I'm worth it because I can attest to that a thousand times over. You are worth it. I'm blessed to have met you. I'm honored to know that we have, you know, projects to, to take on moving forward. Um, I think we could probably get ourselves in some, in some productive trouble here. So uh, I think we should uh, certainly work towards that together. Um, for everybody who's joined us here today, thank you so much for your time, for your presence. Share this conversation. Um, you know, Brady's story is phenomenal and, and it's not often that I get on here and, and get to sit back and just listen and, you know, grateful for the opportunity. You're, you're an incredible person, an incredible story. And, you know, you can, you can count me part of your support team whenever and, and if ever you need. So everybody, thank you so much for joining us here today. Brady, thank you for taking your time to, to join me here today. Sorry for throwing you under the bus. I love that you were late. It wasn't me. Uh, and, uh, and you can all be you can all be assured you'll see the two of us on uh, these screens again in the near future. You you betcha you betcha I can't wait, Kendra. Thank you so much, Kendra. Have a wonderful day. Awesome, you too, Brady. Take care. Thanks for hanging out with us on another episode of Speakeasy, where we believe conversations are meant to be had out loud. Share this episode to help others find our show, and don't forget to rate and review on Apple Podcast. You can also join me at kfisher30 on Instagram as I travel across Canada and the U.S. tackling the current mental health crisis with colleges and universities.